Why don't you have a profile picture for Zoom? Uh, I might be signed out. That's why. Ah. My computer signs me out of Zoom like weekly. It's really annoying. Hmm. Sounds fun. I think it's a big sir issue because it keeps just like, I get this alert once a week that it reset my keychain or something like that. Oh my God. That sounds terrible. Yeah, and it clears all of my settings every time I have to re-sign in and then fix oh all my, my settings. Yeah, so I'm like clearing keychain. That sounds very destructive and annoying. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah, it's a huge pain in the ass. It's like 30 seconds of pain in the ass, so it's not enough for me to like open an IT thread and figure it out. I bet you're getting faster at all those clicks too. Oh, dude, I know exactly all the settings <laughs> that I like. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Welcome to episode 388 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Lovin. And I'm Marshall Bach, and you're right here, coming back for another episode. Brian, how you doing? <laughs> uh, great. I'm looking at a packed-as-hell outline. Yeah. Let's get into it. Let's do it. All right. We got a new golden ratio supporter, y'all. I'm so... Uh, this is going to be such an easy company to talk about. Today's episode is supported, in part, by Mailbrew. Uh, here's the problem. Checking Twitter... 500 times a day because you're worried you're going to miss something that sucks it's super distracting not healthy mailbrew has this feature where you can say hey email me once per day and show me the most popular links that were tweeted by people i follow and show me the most popular tweets among people i follow i basically have a daily digest of the only important shit that happened on Twitter each day. If, if you resonate with this problem and you want this solution, I highly recommend it. I pay for it. I use it every day. Go to mailbrew.com DD. If you go to that link, you can sign up for a free trial. You don't need a credit card. And then if eventually you do decide to sign up, which I highly recommend, you'll get 30% off. So thank you, Mailbrew, for supporting the show. Okay, we also have, man, Big milestone episode, Marshall. Yeah. Uh, this week, we crossed 500 supporters on Patreon. That's unbelievable to me. Unthinkable. Well, at some point, this will slow down, which is scary. I hope not. Maybe that. Maybe we can just do this forever. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, every week when we, we go through and make the list for the reads, it's really awesome. So thank you, everyone who's supporting the show. We're now 500 people, which is crazy. Yep. Uh, you all rock. Warm fuzzies it. every week. Yeah. Well, let's let's shout out some names. Actually, you know uh, what? I, I gotta say something. I realized, you know, VIPs we call, we call uh, the people who join our Patreon VIPs very important pixels. But I also mm. realized recently that it stands for another thing, which is vastly incorrect pronunciations, which is what this should be called. This segment. Okay. Yes. New Brian segment. fucks up your name. <laughs> I love it. Let's dive in. Let's. Here we go. Okay. Uh, huge shout outs to Tai Luong, Eileen Wong. Shumin Wang, Athelia Lung. Hey, that's one of my coworkers. Awesome. Hi, Athelia. Thanks for joining. Oh, Holy shit. That's yo. awesome. <laughs> People we know. Hey, uh, Flora, Gina Lin, Giulio Fagiolini, Grant M. Hansen, Hidden Rain. God, oh, God dang. damn. That better be a screen name. If that's your real name, that's the coolest name If your name real ever. name is Hidden Rain. Yeah. Oh, it's Rain spelled R-A-Y-N. Yeah, yeah. That's like... Uh, I mean, it's Purple Rain vibes. Like this is like an album sure. name, right? Yeah, it's like Hidden Hills mixed with Purple Rain. Mm. Classy. All right. Let's okay. Keep going. Next, next name. Also, a good one here. Uh, 
Shout out to Scuba Steve. <laughs> That's Everybody cool. loves Scuba Steve. <laughs> Shout outs to Dylan Reeson, Christoph, Lucas Lamonier. Uh, here's here's another name. Uh, this person messaged me and said, haha, good luck, and didn't give me a hint on pronunciation. So I did some Googling. I think this name is German. Here we go. Shout out to Uli Straczynski. Sounds I, right. I, yeah, yeah. If it it's not good. German, then it's a different pronunciation. All right, continuing. Shout out to PG Johnny. I hope I got that one right too. Uh, sorry, PG, if I'm mispronouncing it. Hi on Twitter. Uh, Yasmin Shabib, Heidi Pang, Seth Daggett, Ho Uyen Tao. And last but not least, shout out to Liu Ting Yu. Thank you again, everyone. All right. If you didn't know, we're a listener supported podcast, which means that you, yes, you, Jim, in Saskatchewan. <laughs> Jim, God dang it, why aren't you subscribed to the Patreon? <laughs> Listeners like you make this show possible. Every single week supports all of our, our expenses, hardware, software, but also just the time that we put in to make this show possible. Every week, this week is a special week because we just crossed 500 patrons. Yeah. And that's a crazy number, and it's amazing crazy. that everyone has come together to, to support the show. So if you are enjoying the show, and maybe you've been on the fence thinking about it, I'd encourage you to go to patreon.com slash design details. You can start supporting us for just a dollar a month. And when you do, you're going to get access to a new supporter-only segment of the show called The Sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. Yeah, The Sidebar is like a second half of the episode. Mm -hmm. It's usually a bonus question, an extra design topic, an extra cool thing. This week, we answered a listener question about how to just deal with design content overload on a day-to-day basis how to deal with 50 open tabs of, of design content. So if you've ever experienced that or just want to listen to us sort of muse about our learning process and how we've sort of evolved over the years with reading content online about design, consider going to patreon.com slash design details and subscribing today. So thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. All right, let's do some follow-up here. We got a few tweets to address here, Brian. Stuff from the past. So... uh First tweet comes from David Luft. He says, it would be so helpful if you made a video companion to episode 386. That was the one two episodes ago about grid systems that shows how you set up and use your grid systems in Figma. Yeah, I think I probably will have to make a Figma file showing a lot of these different things because I got another request for how to use quadrants from the last episode. So look out for that soon. Maybe by the time this one comes out, if I have time. Uh, I wouldn't count on it. Maybe let's aim for next week. <laughs> yeah, let's aim for next week. Okay, good. <laughs> Give me some time back. Sweet. But yeah, David, uh, look out for that in a, in a week or two. All right. Next week comes from Camden Gaba. He asks, should the vertical spacing between text elements be set by their line height or multiples of your grid interval? Good question. I always go by line height. Line height is the main decider about how far lines should be apart. Unless you have a super text-heavy site with multiple columns next to each other that you want to make sure that every baseline is aligned across columns. Otherwise, yeah, especially in single-column layouts like on mobile, I just let the lines fall where they are, and then I pick up the grid where it left off. Yeah, I do that. I I let the lines just end. Um, Yeah, it reminds me, there's also this CSS spec that is in draft right now, but I think it's called 
line height trim or leading trim. And basically it'll be a native way to do what in the past in CSS has been done with margin hacks, where basically you're trying to crop any white space from above or below your text Hmm. so that it's easier mathematically to get your baseline to align to your grid. Because right now it's such a pain in the ass to do that. In fact, I think there's a really interesting New York Times, I think it was the New York Times, they published this article about how they, literally all the technical hurdles they had to jump over to get their texts to align to a grid. And I look at that kind of stuff, I'm like, yeah, I guess it's nice and maybe designers notice, but at the end of the day, I'm very comfortable just letting lines land where they land and then it's like, all right, well, then the next block will be, what, four grid units away, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't want to be lazy here, but honestly, the technical hacks you have to do to get things to like perfectly align to a baseline grid is not worth it right now. So, yeah, and that's kind of the use case I was talking about. Is a very text heavy site. Like yeah. I don't know the New York Times, a newspaper <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that would justify it. But yeah, other than that, you probably don't need to waste the effort. All right, and our last tweet is from Richard Pico. He asks. Do you conform to a grid for padding inside of a button, for example, or is the overall size of the component more important? Uh, yeah, this is a similar thing yeah. to the to the text stuff. So, like, yes, padding is typically a unit of the grid. So, like, one or one point five or two or whatever. If you're if a grid unit is eight, depending on how much you need. But yeah, usually I snap those padding sizes down to a design token that I've defined elsewhere. Or margins or something else, right? So it's not just some arbitrary number, but uh, the width of the button doesn't matter. It's going to be that padding on both the left and the right, plus whatever the length of the string is, and that's the size of the button, unless the button is spanning a width or whatever, or, or sharing space with another button. Yeah, yeah. Aside from that, it's it's the width it is. Yeah. One thing that I think we do at GitHub, which is also kind of cool, is the entire button component is dynamic based on if it's being rendered on a touch screen or not. So mm. I think we have smaller buttons for interfaces that have pointers like a mouse. Mm-hmm. But on mobile, I think whatever token they're using, I'm not exactly sure how it works, but the token gets bumped up so that buttons you know, meet that minimum tap target size. So that's maybe another way to think about this. Yeah, and I was thinking about it from a horizontal standpoint, but now I'm starting to think maybe he was asking about the vertical and, yeah, I think it might and, be vertical, yeah. Yeah, and if that's the case, then yeah, buttons have fixed heights. And typically the label isn't padded, or I don't think about it as the label having padding above and below. I think about it as the button having a fixed size with the label centered vertically in that container. Whatever that is, those numbers can be weird there because line heights are not necessarily going to conform to your grid. Yeah. And so you might end up with like seven above and below or five above and below, whatever. That doesn't matter. What matters is the overall height of the button. So different answer for different axes. But Yeah, because uh, it will change every time, like depending on the font size that you're using. Yeah, the line height. I think my hack that I use, at least maybe this breaks in some cases, is for buttons in CSS. I'll just do like a line height of one. And then however much padding above and below for that sort of size class of the button to make sure that it's at least 44 dips tall. But yeah, yeah I guess it, it depends. Yeah. We got called out for saying it's de- it depends, but in this case, <laughs> it really does depend on how big your, your type is and where it's being rendered. So 
actually, I don't think it depends. Well, it depends on which axis you're talking about. But if it's vertical, like the, the height of the button is the important thing. And the padding within is just a result of numbers minus other numbers, you know? Yep. All right. So that's it for follow-up tweets. Uh, all stuff talking about our uh, grid and spacing and all this stuff. This is my bread and butter, man. I love these questions. Well, here we go, because we're about to go into fucking Marshall's Bakery <laughs> design tips. Here we go. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Part de of our... Part <laughs> of our tips and tricks section, uh, Marshall's design craft tips and tricks. So last time we talked about the canvas and rolling with defaults and organization, including naming. And I left some stuff out of the naming things that I thought of since last week that I wanted to include. So here's mm-hmm. more naming stuff, as if you weren't sick of uh, me telling you to name layers already. All right. So... I don't think I made this clear enough last time, but the reason naming is important is it's partially for organization and for people telling what's going on in your file if they've never seen it before. And it's great for cleanliness, but it's also super important for navigating the layer list because the way you navigate that layer list is largely based on layer name. Uh, It's just a bunch of groups inset and nested inside of each other all the way down. If those are all random names of things it isn't super helpful. So having names that your eye can snap to really quickly so you can find the exact layer that you're looking for is very helpful. Yeah, I I was going to add, I think the name of your layers also matters if you're using a tool like Figma's Smart Animate when you're prototyping. Mm -hmm. I think it looks for matching layer names in order to know what is eligible for Smart Animation. Yep. Also for swapping between different components, if layers have the same name, they will inherit properties from the previous version that you swapped out. If things are different, it won't know how to hand that stuff off. So you'll lose labels and you'll lose colors and all that. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yep. So continuing on this naming front, one piece of advice I have is to choose a consistent case style. So I prefer title case just because I feel like it reads best. The first letter of each word being capitalized is a good anchor for my eye to, to kind of snap to as I'm trying to read through. Some people do all lowercase. Um, some people do sentence case. Like I said, I prefer title case. But whatever is up to you, just be consistent about it so it's not jumping around as you're looking through the list. Another consistency thing to think about is having kind of common names that you use for common elements. So for example card or list, grid, shelf, button, chip, image, icon. Like these are good generic names that you can really quickly put down uh, without having to think about it. So that renaming process doesn't become a roadblock or a kind of a stumbling point where you have to like waste time thinking about what should I call this damn thing? Just have a system. And if you're naming an element that happens to be on the left or the right side of an element, instead of using left or right, Try using leading and trailing. That's a more specific way to talk about this thing because you'll want those things to flip in a right-to-left layout, right? Mm -hmm. So just because it's on the left in a left-to-right layout doesn't mean it's going to be on the left in a right-to-left layout. That's lots of (laughs) right-to-left, so hopefully that made sense. (laughs) Right. So leading and trailing are are a good way to go when you're setting up a variant component or something like that. Mm -hmm. Another thing you should be about when naming is uh, be clear about naming your text layers. So especially if the text layer placeholder that you've entered isn't the name that you would give that layer. So 
for example, if you have like a description that's like a lorem ipsum block, call that description or stuff like title, subtitle, overline, metadata, or name. Like these are these are common elements that you'll probably create depending on what type of product you have, but have these kind of generic names that are clear about what the purpose of this text string is, not just what happens to be in that text box at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. So what if something doesn't have an obvious name? How can you come up with a way to name it that you don't have to sit there and think about it forever? I use a kind of an X plus Y plus Z format. So for example, if I have a little metadata block of uh, like on YouTube, it'd be like channel name and like views and the upload date or upload recency, right? I could call that metadata. It gets kind of weird. Like, what do you call these things? If I don't know, I would just say channel and then plus and then views plus date. And that's the name of the thing. It's very clear if that frame is collapsed, I know exactly what's in it before I open it up mm, when I'm looking at yeah. that layer yeah. list. And it, again, I don't have to think about it. It's just like X plus Y plus Z, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're using an app like Figma that has really smart naming controls, or renaming controls, like numbering things automatically, take advantage of that because chances are you'll have lists and generic names for those things. Like uh, at YouTube, it would be like video, right? So if I have a big long list of videos in a feed, I would call it video one, video two, video three, so on and such, just a bunch of videos, right? So I can be clear, like, oh, this is the third one down. I can find it real quick in the layer list. All right. So I think that's the end of naming (laughs) help. Uh, All this is new. I just added this since last week. So, okay, here's other things that I had planned on talking about. So when I design a mock, I'm thinking in divs, right? This is this is a, a phrase I use pretty often, which is I think in divs. Div is like a, a, a container in HTML, right? That's how I think about it. So instead of having free-floating objects, like say you have like a section header and the title for that section header shouldn't just be free-floating on your canvas. It should be contained in essentially like a bar or a row that mm-hmm. has a specific height and that title is centered in there and there's an icon on the right or whatever it happens to be, it's not just free-floating. Everything has a container. And those containers are like Legos and they all fit together, butt up right next to each other. They have internal padding that defines how the things inside of them are laid out. But when you put it all together, a long feed or a long page is really just a bunch of Lego blocks shoved together. Is that how you yeah, think about it? Exactly. With the most recent auto layout where you can define padding per size, I can think of basically zero reasons to ever have a free floating layer. Yep. You might as well put it in a sort of fill container div of a frame, right? Mm-hmm. And then just assign whatever left, right padding you need if you're doing some manual placement. Otherwise, just let the computer place everything and adjust dynamically as you're modifying content, shuffling content. I love arrow keys to reorder stuff like Mm -hmm. there's so many benefits of just putting everything in a frame and then ideally making every frame have auto layout to contain its children Mm -hmm. like once you really get into the flow of that you can make very complex complicated flows very quickly in such a way that oh shit i forgot some string needs to go here and it's going to wrap onto three lines and it doesn't even freak you out because you don't have to nudge anything ever again Yep. It changes everything. So yes, contain everything. Contain everything. Yep. Those are those Legos will make your life a lot easier because if you do it right, they expand and contract as necessary based on their contents. 
And another good advantage of this is that they will be responsive to different screen sizes. So if you drag a component to a different mock that has a different size and the thing is set up to be fill container, it will fill that container on the width. Yeah. So I, I do this a lot. I, I have an iPhone 12 mini and then I have a 12 Pro Max. Mm-hmm. And I like to do Figma mirror and just check my mocks on the most dense or like the most condensed size or almost like 375 is pretty small on the mini. And I love just grab the parent frame, resize it, switch yep. phones, check really quick, resize it back, and I don't have to nudge a thing. It's great. Yep. Everything just works. It's beautiful. All right. So that's thinking in divs. The next part I want to talk about is minimal structure. So when you look over in that layer list, the number of nested elements should be as simple as possible, right? So you should never have any parents that only have one child in them because... Mm, a parents with only a child that's a frame, right? Well, unless it's specific to the layout or the way the prototype works or whatever, unless you need that specific hierarchy of one thing inside of one thing, there's no reason to have one thing inside of one thing. You should just have one thing, right? That extra layer, unless it's doing something, is only taking up space and and pushing all of your contents one layer deeper into the hierarchy. Yeah, I, I agree with the spirit of what you're saying, and I think it's everyone should aspire to have as flat of a structure as possible. I've just noticed in the spirit of making everything auto layout, I do find myself having to hack together like, ah, crap, I kind of need to nest this frame inside one other frame so I can apply some different rule to that parent frame. Yep. Um, I find myself doing that a lot, which sucks for the sidebar and like the layer structure, but it gives me all these other benefits for free. So I don't know, I I play fast and loose with this one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a a thing to aspire to, but it's generally a good rule to keep in mind like as you're doing stuff, like does it need to be this complicated? Can I flatten this in any way? Can I move this padding up one layer to its parent so I don't have to do it down on this child layer and get rid of the layer, right? But yeah, I I do this a lot with uh, especially text blocks being next to each other, like two pieces of text might want to be closer to each other than they are to the one above. So now I'm doing a nested thing inside of a nested thing. That's okay, though, because it's serving the function of the layout and it's providing actual structure. Yep. All right. So speaking of structure, here's how I set up my mocks. I'm curious how you do it at the top level. But Brian, generally, when I have a mock, especially for mobile, but it doesn't really matter, any any given screen, the top level of that hierarchy is usually very, very simple. For example, on mobile, I usually only have three layers. There's header, footer, and body. And everything is contained within those. So inside of the header, that's a, a V stack, a vertical stack of the status bar and the nav bar, and maybe like a chip bar or some other sub bar. And those are all V stacked together, snapped up right next to each other like Legos, extended all the way to the edges of the screen left and right. And then same thing with the footer, that's got a tab bar or a toolbar. And the home indicator, those are sandwiched together, snapped to the bottom of the screen. And then everything in between is the body. And that's just a vertical stack of whatever feed or whatever grid or whatever it happens to be inside of there. So when I look at my mock, it's really just three layers Mm -hmm. that delve deeper. So at the top level, it's a very simple structure. Is that how you do it? Yeah, I have the same thing. But here, help me debug this because this is one thing that I don't know what to do in Figma. So I use the feature fixed position while scrolling. Do you know what that is? Yeah, a little checkbox, yeah. 
Yeah, so I have that checkbox enabled for the header and the footer. So I want my content to scroll behind my nav bar and my tab bar. Mm-hmm. But that means that I don't get auto layout on the overall screen. So I have auto layout on the body contents. But if I add a bunch of stuff to the body contents or remove a bunch of stuff or I'm prototyping a flow where one body content is is very tall and another one is very short, I have to go through and manually resize the parent container because if you try and auto layout the whole thing, you lose that fixed position while scrolling checkbox. Have mm. you found a solution for this? No, I just roll with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a big deal. I just think you can just like double click the frame and it'll resize to its contents. Like not a huge deal, but it's a little bit tedious. Yeah, I mean, typically my mocks are laid out with the header snap to left, right, top, footer snap to left, right, bottom, and body snap to left, right, top as well. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. It's more like in the prototype mode. I I need that fixed position while scrolling feature, and it's a little bit incompatible with auto layout. Gotcha. Yeah, no good solution. Sorry. But I do have a section that I'm going to talk about that is Figma-specific tips and tricks because that's the tool I use. All right, we'll wrap this up real quick. This is going long. Oh, man. Okay, so Figma only. All right. First thing I see so often is if you came from Sketch, you probably got used to creating a rectangle background for any given group that you create, whether that's a row or a bar or whatever. You've got a rectangle that sits in the background, probably called background or BG or whatever. You don't need to do that in Figma. Frames have their own fill, and that fill acts as your background, and they will always be behind whatever contents are within that frame. So you can get rid of a layer automatically by, by doing that. You can even stack effects on top of each other, different fills. If you need a gradient or whatever it happens to be, you can stack those things even within just that single layer. So no more background layers if you're in Figma. Stop doing that. It's unnecessary and it, it makes it harder to change. Um, also incompatible with auto layout. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it'll fuck up your whole auto layout because <laughs> it sees that as an object within the frame. Okay, similarly... Image fills should be used instead of masking. So I see this a lot too, where it's like I'm, I'm putting an avatar up or whatever. And instead of making the fill of that layer be the image, that layer is a frame which contains the image and a mask over that image or behind it. I forget how it works because I never use masks. But the designer has centered the picture perfectly so that it aligns in that mask you're fucking doing it wrong. Um, One, that's cheating because that's not how the system's going to do it. It's going to take whatever image is in there and you should set up your mock in the same way that the code is going to render that image. And two, it's just too many extra layers that you don't need. It's three layers that could just be one layer, right? Mm -hmm. So stop doing that. On that same front, use frames to clip contents instead of using masks. This is why I rarely use masks because frames have that clip contents checkbox. So I just click on that thing. If it needs to be rounded, I'll round the corners or whatever. But unless it's like a special shape, like a star or something like that, like if it's a rounded rectangle or a circle, which most things are nowadays, you don't need to mask it. Just use the frame itself to mask it. And then uh, we're talking about frames. So what's the difference between groups and frames? And when should you use a group versus when you should use a frame? Um, My general rule of thumb is I almost never use groups, partly because frames have constraints and groups don't. Frames use auto layout. If you have a group and you add auto layout to it, it automatically turns it into a frame. So might as well just be frames. And like we said, most of our stuff has auto layout and most of our stuff is constrained. So frames by default. 
groups I tend to think about as like a rubber band, right? It's not a permanent solution. It's just a loose way of grouping things together. And it <laughs> uh-huh. always yeah, yeah. snaps to the smallest size it can be. So that's kind of how I think about groups. Like if I need to rubber band some stuff together really quick, like say I want to move a bunch of mocks around at once, but I want to set their XY offset, I'll group those real quick, set the XY offset, because otherwise they would all go to that XY offset instead of maintaining whatever layout they had before. So I'll group them real quick, set that offset, and then immediately ungroup them. Otherwise, I basically never use groups. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I haven't used a group since 2017. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't actually know the date. But yeah, I'm pretty much all in on frames at this point. I, I've talked to the Figma folks about this. I've asked them. And I think they they still have a reason for keeping groups around. It might be what you've just described, like the fact that it constrains the contents. But otherwise, practically speaking, yeah, a frame. You want constraints and auto layout 99% of the time. So, Yep. All right, the last piece of advice I had was to put those constraints and auto layout padding values at the highest level that they can be, or maybe not necessarily at the highest level they can be, but put them at the appropriate level in the hierarchy where they're actually doing the work that is intended. So for example, if you have margins, be specific about where those margins actually sit within your components. Like Are they on the body element itself, like the whole container that has everything? Or are they on each individual section within that body? Or are they in each individual element within those sections? Like, where does your padding go? I don't think it really matters. I mean, I have my preferences. I typically put them at the element level, kind of at the organism level, if you're into the whole atomic design thing. But... Regardless of what your norm is, you should always choose to put it where it's actually doing the work that it's being intended to do, right? Of setting yeah. that mark. I don't know how to um, say this well. Uh, no, I'll link to an article by Max Soiber, who has an article about this called Margin Considered Harmful. And I really love this idea of the the atoms in your design system should not ever have margin. Like you shouldn't ever apply margin to a button. You should you shouldn't ever apply margin to a line of text, right? Uh, because it really restricts the place that that component can be used. All of a sudden, it's going to have weird interactions with other elements around it, and those other elements might have their own padding or margin, and then you have to end up doing like a bunch of overrides. So generally, the system that I subscribe to is these like children, the, the sort of the, the units of the system, so buttons or list items, they have zero padding. The size of the frame is constrained to the contents of the frame, or uh, yeah, to, to its contents. Mm-hmm. And then I use auto layout, sort of the gap spacing property, to make sure that it's offset from its sibling by a certain amount every time. So yeah, I would just... Interesting. Yeah, I try and... Because def- otherwise, you can end up in situations where... Like you have a bunch of list items and if you encapsulate the padding and then you like want to add a different sort of footer to it, now all of a sudden you're you're doing mental math to get your footer to be the right distance away. Like maybe you're on a vertical spacing system of 16 mm-hmm. and then your last list item has maybe a bottom padding of like 8 or 12 or something like that because you want the middle set, the gaps to be right, right? Uh-huh. You want the middle gaps to add up to 16. That means your top and bottom have to be 8. So then when you're adding a footer, then your footer has to be eight. It's really annoying. I would rather just have all of those elements have zero padding and set that 16 spacer at the parent level. Hmm. 
anyways, it doesn't apply every time, but I think there's just different ways to sort of reason about it. Yeah, just be intentional about it, right? I, I don't do it the way Brian does it, but I, I have good reasons for doing it my way, and he has good reasons for doing it his way. Just make sure you have good reasons for doing it your way. Yeah. Uh, that's it for me. Did you have anything? I wanted to tag on one little thing just because yeah. I saw a funny conversation about this on Twitter this week. It was, there's almost never a reason to use the circle drawing tool in Figma oh. if you're designing user interfaces. My rule of thumb is if you need something that is the shape of a circle, it should 100% of the time be a square with corner radius. I actually have a counterpoint to this. Hit me. I would love to. I've never, I never use O, the O character. <laughs> yeah, I've run into this. So this is how I set up avatars. I, I set them up as rounded rectangles with half of the height and width. So they look like circles. But I found that if you copy and paste style from another thing that doesn't have the same roundedness of the corners, it will override that value. So yep. it'll mm-hmm. go from a circle to a square and you have to put that radius back in. So circles wouldn't do that. Uh, fair. Okay, that's the one time I'm not sure. You'd have to do a pro-con trade-off here. I think that's, that's still yeah. not worth having circles. Yeah, I've, I've left it. Um, keeping that open is, is really nice. Yeah, Circles can never be squares, but squares can always be circles. I feel like we could maybe come up with a part three list here. Maybe let's just start working on a a list in the background because I have a couple of other things that are coming to mind that have saved me a lot of time in Figma. Um, Okay. I'm sure I'll think of more things. Yeah, we're getting into a long episode, so I vote we do cool things and we'll start a a list for part three and maybe people will tweet at us with some other ideas. Yeah, what do we leave out? What else would you like to share? What Mm -hmm. makes Mm -hmm. your life easier that other people should know? Yeah. All right, what's your cool thing, Brian? Okay, my cool thing is directly related. It might have been a cool thing before, honestly, but I think it's just worth a re-shout out in this case because we spent so much time talking about design tools and how to become more effective at them. Well, there's this app that I really like. It's called Mouseless, uh, mouseless.app. Great little website and design. And the way it works is the app is a collection of apps And the goal is to teach you the keyboard shortcuts for those apps. So for example, there's Sketch, there's Figma, there's Slack, there's Photoshop, like all these tools that you might use on a day-to-day basis for productivity in your work. And Hmm. the app is designed to, to help you memorize the right keyboard shortcuts and combinations to do certain kinds of complex things. So it's like an interactive training for getting away from your mouse, hence mouseless like flashcards for keyboard shortcuts exactly yeah so it's great it's a few bucks go buy it if you use this and end up figuring out how to save like i don't know a minute a day this will pay for itself in a couple months so it's really a no-brainer purchase for me to like go through i feel pretty comfortable with my keyboard shortcuts but i think even now it's like open it up see what new things they've added like oh i didn't know you could do that crazy thing if you added option onto it like oh i'm gonna go try that so i think it's Mm -hmm. always worth poking and trying to find opportunities to optimize your knowledge of keyboard shortcuts, especially in a tool like Figma, where you really want to optimize for hands-on keyboard time. Cool. Yeah. Man after my own heart, Brian. Mm-hmm. Love it. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, my cool thing this week is the new documentary about Billie Eilish on Apple TV Plus called The World's a Little Blurry. Have you seen it yet, Brian? 
No, I've seen the the marketing promo spots for it, but I haven't watched it. Yeah, we just watched it last night. It's really good. It's like two and a half hours. It's a hefty documentary. It's like Lord of the Rings level shit. Um, <laughs> Extended edition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think I had Billie Eilish's music videos as a cool thing a long, long time ago. I kind of caught that wave after you know she was already pretty big but not nearly as big as she is now so, oh man you know, hip, are we getting marshall's cred. hipster billy hipster Eilish cred. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh no but like I, I you know she's been awesome for a long time and now people are recognizing it so it's cool to see this documentary that covers from when she was like i don't know she had to be 15 because she was like trying to get her driver's permit and now she's 18 so it covers several years of her life going from relative obscurity to a world-renowned musical artist, so with like six Grammys or whatever. So, check it out, Billie Eilish. The world's a little blurry. I very much enjoyed it, except for like there, there's some like relation, like teenage relationship bullshit in there that is fast-forwarded through that stuff. But yeah. everything else, the creativity and like the artistic side of it, is fascinating to me. Awesome. Uh, sounds great. I'll cue it up. <laughs> Onto cool. the backlog. Hey. hey. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, this has been episode 388. We hope you enjoyed it. You know, every week we wrap this up and we go into editing and then we re-listen for show notes. We're like, I hope this was good. I hope people get something out of it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think every week we get some tweets that say, this one spoke to me in particular. And we love seeing those tweets. So if this was useful, please let us know. We love hearing it. We love iterating and making sure that we're talking about the right things that that feel valuable for your time. So tweet Mm -hmm. at us at Design Details FM. If you're enjoying the show, if you're getting something out of it and you haven't subscribed to us on Patreon, please consider doing that. You can go to patreon.com slash design details. And for just a dollar a month, you'll get access to complete episodes of the show. So basically tack on a second half through a special supporter-only segment called The Sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. In this week's sidebar, we talked all about sort of learning on the side, like how to deal with information overload for those of us who just love to sort of absorb design content and how to balance doing versus reading and learning. So if that sounds interesting, once again, that's patreon.com slash design details. All right, that's it. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Mm, there's a little spin on that top spin. Yeah, I didn't mean to, but it was uh, very subtle. I think yeah. o- like only seasoned listeners will have heard that. And like, mm, Marshall is trying something new here. Yeah, it's like you get used to the classic, and then you buy the organic, and you're like, oh, this tastes a little bit different than the classic. <laughs> very subtle, though. Very yeah, yeah, subtle, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't have known if I hadn't looked at the label. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing.